Hi, I'm Ryan Jennings, and this is a Kiwi Original. Today on the show, I'm joined by Jim Benson, who is one of the three brothers who founded Magic Software. This is a company that's been around since the 1980s. And the three brothers, Jim, Pat, and John, had an inkling about the potential of computers to help solve difficult problems, and that's key. Over the next 30 years, they developed and grew their business and their software capability. Their Magic Cloud platform is now relied upon predominantly in public sector organizations in New Zealand and around the globe. For example, financial management at 700 schools in the North Island alone, 100 Australian healthcare organisations, and also throughout the United States. In total, over 550 organisations currently enjoy using Magic every day for their financial management. We were based in Napier, my hometown, in one of the buildings that they have put a lot of heart and love into to give back to the community, to really restore Napier to its heyday architecturally, which is great for a tech company to be doing that in regional New Zealand. Let's take a listen. Those people watching now, that actually, they weren't around in that time. This is pre-computers, no. 70s, 80s, early 80s. What was it like to actually be in business without computers? Well, I, I don't know if I've even got much uh, knowledge of that. They, they had curious machines called sensomatics and strange you know, mechanical electrical devices from companies like uh, National Cash Register and Burroughs. And uh, IBM ruled the mainframe world. And that was pretty much what it was like. So computers were around, but they weren't necessarily something that every business owned and certainly not every consumer. You could get access to them, but only for particular mm. use cases where it was worth the, what, a considerable spend to invest. Well, in the, yeah, in the, in the mid-70s, I remember, I could tell you where they all were. Watties had one. Um, the Hawke's Bay Meat Company had one, and that was a Burroughs computer. Uh, there was a an NCR machine at Rothman's Tobacco, and there was um, an IBM System 3 out at the Fertworks. Those were the only only machines that had programmers. So a handful of mm. computers in Hawke's Bay. That's and right. Then, and you were working on one of those at the time. I was working at Watties on their IBM mainframe. What were you doing on that mainframe for Watties? Well, they were just starting to get going on the the Kix system, I don't know if you've heard of that, that's a mainframe system that still runs all the ATMs. Their terminal was the 3270, uh, and that's still what runs, what, what's running the uh, airlines and banks. 80% of the transactions in the world are probably going through Kix systems. So that was one that you sharpened your teeth on back in the early 80s to get into software? That's right. That was uh, no. That was into the mid seventies, and before we formed the company, um, my brother and um, several other people who are still working with us were selling computers for Burroughs Corporation, and you'd find that the bulk of, uh, and particularly in this area, the bulk of electricity companies and local authorities had small sort of semi. Well, they, they called them mini computers. 
but uh, there was nothing many about them. And they were hardly computers, but they were. And um, it was the days when super salesmen got out there and sold systems and looked around and tried to find some software. So often as not, they wrote the software themselves. <laughs> a very strange environment. And um, at about that stage, I, I became interested in that. And uh, that's when we decided that uh, these computer companies really need some packaged software. So the, the hardware part was, that's the first way in as, as a company wants to buy some computer hardware and software is really an afterthought to be able to just sell hardware in. What attracted you to the software side of it rather than just sell computers? Well, um, it was just uh, probably a fairly modest university career, although my, my brother had a fairly advanced um, mathematics career and he became an actuary for a while. And uh, then we decided that computers looked like quite a good thing to do. And the first thing we observed was there was, there was no packaged software and it was being handcrafted virtually every time a computer was sold. Um, you don't see things like MYOB and Zero and, uh, and those sorts of things, which everyone takes for granted now. But I believe that we produced the first set of packaged software for debtors, creditors, payroll, general ledger, and um, sold that multiple times around the country. But that was before the formation of the current company. And so this is financial software that actually makes those computers more valuable because now they can do something, not just on their own, but they'll be expected to work a certain way mm. in more than one business. Between yourself and Pat and John, what, do, what were the skills that you all brought to it back then? Well, John was initially a good, a very successful salesman with, um, with Burroughs. Um, but we really, we, we really um, did most of the initial software wrote most of the software with another couple of um, guys who are old associates from our school days. Pat came along somewhat later. Um, he had been involved in software somewhere else, but that's not his real strength. His real strength was getting out there and, and doing the sales and, um, and as a general manager. Uh, both John and myself were really concentrating on software. And with the, the sales side of it was, did it have the same focus as you've got now with uh, in the local government side of things? Or were you looking to just sell the software to any business that needed that financial aspect? Initially, we did try many markets. We, we tried chartered accountants, and we had share brokers, we even did one of the big dairy companies up north. Um, to us, there was a lot of effort there, but not not much resale um, potential. And uh, we decided to hit on uh, two markets that had some complexity in them that we thought would be difficult for others to approach. And uh, one of them is local authorities. Local authorities have got about 35 different things they do. You know, got not only rates and water, but they also got car parks and um, building permits and whatnot, dog licensing, that sort of stuff. They do many different things and it's quite hard to get all that stuff together combined into a, um, into a comprehensive package. 
And then electricity billing is, has been has proved to be notoriously difficult for people to develop, and we developed that. Uh, at one stage, we had I think fifteen power companies in New Zealand, so our customers were sending out power bills to I think twenty three percent of the population. Wow! And um, and they um, you know, that that market came under pressure when they amalgamated them all. But we had some of the really big ones like Waikato Electricity, Hawke's Bay Electricity, North Power. Um, not, there were, aside from the big um, centres of Wellington and Auckland, we had the kind of next level. So some of them were quite big operations. Um, you know, Waikato Electricity would send out 6,000 power bills a day, for example. Big, uh, big volumes and very difficult for others to come and replicate. So we packaged that up. Uh, we also we were invited by the Asian Development Bank to provide it out in the Pacific, which we did, um, and that was yeah that, that was we uh, our theme was to really alight upon things that would be difficult for others to do, and so it proved. So that almost flies in the face sometimes of looking for low-hanging fruit. You actually were attracted to things that were going to be complex to mm. develop, difficult or almost impossible within certain industries like energy, where at least in your view, no one had managed to convert kilowatts to bills at scale that were accurate at, right. at that point in time. How did you go about solving those complex problems. Yeah, and they are complex problems. We did the first time of use metering actually at Waikato Electricity. I developed that. <laughs> the first user? Yeah, the first, the first time of use billing that was done. It's now quite common um, and spread around the world. Um, but, um, but just the electricity business itself is quite complex based on there were a lot of things happened there, you know, people leave, there, there are faults, there are all sorts of things go on. People have babies and their estimated bills go up and that sort of thing. A highly complex sort of billing operation. I remember that from my telecoms days is that you would have, there, there was always this kind of tale of you'd sell the service and there'd be data and minutes and mm. megabytes and a bill would come through and there would always be something that didn't quite match because you're dealing with ones and zeros and, and things that are intangibles, so it requires something that monitors those intangibles and comes up with something that, that's accurate. We, we got, it was quite accidental that we got going on the rating side of things because the, um, in the old days, the ports, um, the port of Gisborne in this case, had the ability to rate the local population to support their activities. And they had 14, uh, 14 or 15,000 properties they rated, but they were traditionally broke. But fortunately, Roger Donaldson um, decided to film a new version of Mutiny on the Bounty in about 1984, I think. And he had um, Mel Gibson and Anthony Hopkins there. And uh, they, had the they, they built the replica of the Bounty in New Zealand, and it was stationed anyway. They, they kept it at the port of Gisborne. And that, so they had a bit of a windfall, so they sensibly spent it on our, uh, our system. So that was the first rating system we did. Um, and after that, we, we got going with a couple of closer ones, the wire ones, the uh, 
Wairau Borough and Wairau Council. It was also, in, the, in those days, you'd traditionally find a town the size of Wairau, you'd find a borough, you'd find a county, and you'd find an electric power board all in one place. And um, I do recall that when we, we, we installed, I'm pretty sure it was the, the county office we did first, and used to have um, things like checks with sprocket holes up the side and drawn through printers. And I remember there was a company called Moore Paragon who uh, who used to supply all the stationery for all of these local authorities around here. And we said, well, um, they said, right, you've just installed the, uh, the, the county and the borough wanted to know what their form should look like because we used to print words in little boxes across the checks. And um, they... Uh, they said, well, it'll be just like the uh, county office ones, the same as that, just put your logo on the top, which they, they duly did, and sent out their first check run, and they all started appearing in the county's <laughs> bank statements, because I'd forgotten to change the uh, <laughs> magnetic ink on the bottom. But um, that's, that was where we got started on this sort of thing, and, and because the electricity company was right there, and they, were all, they all had a lot to do with each other, that's really was our first opportunity to get into the electricity business. So those so it was, it was all, all started by the mutiny on the bounty, there you go. <laughs> and those, um, those initial companies that would have, that brought in the, the funding and also the confidence that what complexities you had solved were actually worth something to those organisations, um, at, at what point did you realise that after doing a number of them, maybe that this could be standardised, not just bespoke at each part, or have you continued with that bespoke implementation? No, they're all absolutely standard. You know, they get a few, get a few differences, of course. I mean, the, the Port of Gisborne had a pretty simple model of rating, but they don't pick up any rubbish or supply libraries. So the rating model was pretty pretty straightforward, um, but you just switch on and off options. We we only we retain one code base for everything. So a general ledger and accounts payable standard debtors are exactly the same in every installation, which makes it great then for the maintenance side of it. For the, the customers that implemented this very early on that maybe didn't have that level of um, granularity with software and managing their rating systems, were there any big um, drops or increases in what they thought they had in terms of cash or forecasting? Because now you're giving them accuracy when maybe before there was some inaccuracy or some, some latitude to move. Um, did that change the way they then could operate using your software? Yeah, well, we, we prided ourselves in being solution providers and, uh, and providing good administration systems. Our, our target audience was the administration people because that's, that's the essence of any good business is having good administration, uh, particularly with the power companies. That's just a big numbers game. Just get everything right. We pioneered things that you'll, you'll see... Those of you who use zero will notice they've got this uh, wonderful automatic bank reconciliation. And we did that years and years ago. We probably did that 25 years ago with the big power companies so that they'd balance their bank account to their general ledger every morning by 9 o'clock. We, we pioneered quite a lot of uh, those sorts of things. And those, um, 
the result in those cases was just good administration and, and good reporting. Um, but in some cases, and we, we've done some other significant jobs, like farmlands, for example, was a, um, a very big customer of ours, and they had about 35 stores around selling selling gumboots and sheep drench. Um, but they were, the year we went in there, their sales were um, something like 60 million, I think, the annual turnover. At the end of the first year, they had gone to 90 million, but their stock levels had dropped by 20%. They were just so much more efficient and started making a lot more money. That's a whole and, lot uh, less holding costs yeah, it of, is. of inventory. So that, in a case like that, you can you can produce some real efficiencies, as, and we produced a, a really great branch system that brought their costs down and made the whole thing, made the whole organisation hum. And uh, they've since been gobbled up by someone else in the South Island, but it was uh, quite a significant sale for us. So it wasn't just local authorities and power companies; they were the bulk of the work we did, but. Farmlands, well, of course, you can't sell that anywhere else. It is <laughs> so a, we're, we're very much into packaged software these days. The New Zealand-made Kiwi trademark is relied upon by over 1,500 New Zealand businesses to gain a market origin advantage in the markets they operate, both domestically and internationally. Check to see if the good, service or software that you make is eligible at buynz.org.nz. Who then opened up the, the international side of the, the sales for what is Magic Software today, Jim? Well, we've done, as, as I described before for, for our American partners, We'd done all that work, that really hard work of getting electricity billing running smoothly. We'd done all those sorts of things. And then we thought, well, our reporting and budgeting is not good enough. So we started reselling some uh, software from Australia. But we noticed that that was missing a few things too. <laughs> some of the things that we already had, like the long-term financial planning and quite, uh, quite intricate stuff. So in, in the end, we thought the best thing to do was to, to buy that company. Uh, that's a Melbourne-based company. We, we investigated that uh, in, in great depth. And um, the big thing we noticed was their culture was pretty much the same as ours. I mean, uh, New Zealand companies going into Australia don't always have a wonderful track record, but we found a really good fit over there. And, um, so once we were there, we immediately had you know three hundred odd customers in Australia, and um, we then set about incorporating our long-term planning and our cloud technology into the um, uh, into that product, and that is the product that we've taken to the states. Um, there's a, it does become a we had to make a decision about ten years ago whether to just quietly go into retirement or to really relaunch the, the operation. And that was, that was very much the, uh, the basis of doing that. We, we had to scale up, otherwise we'd just be gobbled up. So that was a, a moment in time where there was a technology break point, wasn't there, mm, where yeah. 
that install, um, you get the server, you get the software, you, everything's on premise, mm. started to shift to there's a cloud version that mm. could do away with the on premise. So we all sitting around the, the board table thinking, do we go and do that with some risk and a whole lot more work? Or do we keep what we've got, which is it's going really well. It's, it just has a finite time frame. Well, we, I, I believe we've, we've now arrived at a situation where we're, we're first into the cloud. Uh, I can't see any of our competitors have got anywhere near as much as we have. And that's what's so attractive to the American audience is that they're, they're actually quite some distance behind in many ways, you'd be surprised. But um, that aspect of getting the software into the cloud has been, has been key. And um, uh, I, I think we've, that and a number of other things, we've got some crucial leads. One of the good things that we have in New Zealand is very good public administration for councils. And long-term plans have been, have been necessary in New Zealand for 20, 25 years, I think. As I said before, that if you're you know, building a sewerage plant or putting in some underwater, underground pipes or something, you expect them to last for some time. You don't pay for them out of this year's rates, so you have to work out how to finance them and, and deal with these long-term financial plans, as do other organisations such as health boards. Um, those regulations are just coming in in Australia, so they're beating wow. a beating a path to our door, and uh, and probably in the states, um, although they've got slightly different uh, things or issues there that we don't have. Um, but we've got key advantages in our software at the moment, and uh, it's been it's there's been tremendous work done out of our Melbourne team, but. Um, one thing I, I should mention is we got we, we actually started the first commercial internet service in, in New Zealand and that was a company called Internet Prolink and um, that was right at the birth at, in, in the beginning there were a few internet services out of the universities there was another one in Wellington uh, what was their name but we were the first ones to produce proper bills and do proper accounting and slash the prices for international traffic they were, the, the traditional price was $10 a megabyte for international traffic. I don't remember it being that high, but I do remember at university it was, it was $2 a megabyte and you had to be very selective. And, the, and if you could find an image online, that, that was an interesting thing. And just going back to your, your previous point, there was two things I drew from what you were saying there. was that uh, you said that you'd be surprised of, of where some other nations are at, like the United States, mm. around the adoption of technology, because they are bigger countries, they move slower because there's more at risk. We can move faster in New Zealand. And around the software mm. moving to cloud, um, that transition. Then the second thing was, there, is there a regulatory advantage we have because long-term planning here is regulated versus where Australia and America mm. doesn't have that same level of compliance? Yeah, well, it, it, particularly in that long-term planning um, uh, with respect to Australia, we, we do have similar but different um, you know, building permits and environmental laws, those sort of things. So we, we, it wouldn't be practical for us to take any of that sort of software to, to the states. We're very from state to state anyway. Mm -hmm. um, we're, we're merely interested in the and the financial modelling, the budgeting, 
and the reporting. Um, those, are, those are the big opportunities in the States. And um, I think I touched on before, we, we really have put a lot of work into our data connectors so we can lay our software over, the, over a wide range of applications and broaden it from um, simple financial reporting and financial statements out into, say, modelling of labour costs and capital costs and uh, analysing analyzing any data set that may be in your system. And um, uh, that, that's, that's, that's just crucially important for modern financial people, be able to do that modelling. And uh, to the extent that, I mean, it's, it works alongside things like Power BI, but um, it really just makes the job easier. I'll give you an example in the States where they, virtually all local authorities have to produce their glossy budget document. You know, they, they do it here too, and you see those pie charts, pick up rubbish or whatever, and you know, these little, little charts. They have to produce those every month. And, uh, and they... Um, it used to take, you know, they, their local authorities are quite small, so wire would be quite a, uh, quite a big size over there. A lot of small places, and it, it could take their financial person three days a month to do that. Well, now it, now it pops out of our publishing system in a, in a couple of hours. And, uh, that, uh, things like that uh, are things I haven't seen, and just, to, just make all the difference. And this is through the financial software that's called that's a performance suite of yeah, the performance software. suite. And this doesn't require the uh, finance department or accounts to migrate away from how they currently manage their data. This is a no. an overlay that can extract via API or integrations that's exactly. to provide them the performance reporting. That's right. Yeah, that's uh, everything's in the world of APIs these days. <laughs> In terms of the presentation of the, the data, what type of tools does that end user within accounts then get to be able to present in different ways? The, the pie chart, is there ways where they can create their own reports for internal use only, for example, uh, without having to have developers on the payroll? Um, it's, it's very, I mean, it's, it's, it's best shown with a demonstration, but it's very easy to create your own um, dashboards. But remember when you get into the cloud that different rules apply. You can't allow people to start getting in there with select this, that and the other thing. You can't let people have direct access to databases because that would be a security nightmare, you might say. So it has to be controlled via the applications and uh, we've provided simple means for people to do the sim from the simplest reports through to creating dashboards that they might need. And uh, it's, it's pretty comprehensive but simple to do. But we, we provide the standard ones. And that code base is all managed from Napier here in New Zealand by your your team here, and then deployed via is it Amazon? Most of um, yeah, this uh, most of the performance software is now done in Melbourne, um, but it's probably managed from here. I think most of the dashboards and the installations are done from here. Um, uh, we have several upon Amazon Web Services. The reason we've done that is because there are a lot of um, facilities becoming available under the Amazon world. I mean, getting into the AI and the analytics world, there's, um, there's so much more that can be done. 
They seem and, to be uh, just turning on services yeah, from they do. it was software as a service and now there's platform as a service and mm. you can decide how many layers you want them to do and how many That's right. you want to do. How do you know where the right layer is to start and well, stop? Yeah, we, we, we try not to be too geeky, but you do need a few geeks in there too. Uh, um, you know, we're, 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 we try and hide it. Um, but um, in the end, it's quite, a, quite an intricate business, a non-trivial business to get that stuff right. Uh, and uh, there's, there's some evolution required to do that, you know, some, of, some of the things we have to do, but um, we've, we've got pretty good resources in that area. And now gathered a lot of experience in it. And as you will have seen, we've, we're now accredited at a fairly high level with the AWS guys. What does it take to to get talent to come to Napier and work for Magic Software? <laughs> well, I, I tell you what, I, I really like the local EIT. Um, I mean, the, 20 years ago I had my doubts about that organisation, but now we're getting just wonderful young graduates. And what we find is they um, we're, we're more interested in people who have got a business perspective. Um, but certainly, you know, we've got a young guy, uh, Freddie Stoddart. And if you know, uh, there's a Stoddart Road down in, out of Waipukurau. He's from a farming family and he went to the EIT here, but he's now our, our AWS expert in, in Melbourne. So we're, we're getting quite a lot of good young local guys. We get the odd one from, with computer science degrees from Auckland University. Um, but, um, these the the young locals are good, and then when they want to go and seek their fortune in, in a big city overseas, well, we don't lose them; we send them to Melbourne. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> we don't, let, we don't let them out of our clutches, <laughs> and uh, it's that's that's a great great success. Um, Hawke's Bay is a yeah. I mean, that's, this comes back to you know what we've done with buildings and the whole environment. It's a it's a really attractive place now. For, and a lot, of, a lot of people are coming here. I know that a lot of young people would like to be in the big smoke, but um, I don't know, we pick them up, the young, young locals who we give internships, they go away to university and then they come back. Uh, we don't, don't lose track of them. The first 15 years of the company, no one left. That was uh, fairly remarkable in, in, in the IT business. That's great for at least personal expertise and what's been coded and that's to right. avoid the non-documentation yeah. of code and that's right and the the um yeah just retaining knowledge is so, uh, such an important aspect i mean it's hard to, you know, when you get when you get people out of straight out of computer science school they, they don't really know a debit from a credit or what really goes on in the payroll system or um and, and although if they got brains and smarts, they'll, they'll get good mentoring here, and they tend to stay. Occasionally they're dragged away by some love interest somewhere, but uh, we can't <laughs> control that. <laughs> but uh, our, our stability uh, within our staff is fantastic. Hardly anyone leaves. And they, that says something about the, the types of meaty challenges that you are trying to solve, because mm. There's complexity in software just by its very nature. It's intangible and you have to understand the programming part. There is complexity in finance, debit, credit, statement of financial performance, balance sheets. There's also complexity in business to business. It's harder to understand that if you've never sold two businesses. Mm. There's a different sales process from business to consumer. 
And then you're dealing in a niche of that around local government that has its own um, ways of working and then across multiple jurisdictions. There's a huge amount there to... Yeah, there is. A lot of, there's a lot of complexity and it, and it doesn't go away. <laughs> and I was looking that you've got 550 global public sector or social service yeah, quite Install a few base. not-for-profits and odd, odd little things. I mean, there's a, a little cancer ward, just the latest customer. That's all, and some some outfit. Quite a lot of hospitals in Australia, and, and a number of health boards here. Um, but a lot of not-for-profits. Um, it's some very strange things. I mean, they can be quite small. Oh, we've got the um, the Archdiocese of St. Louis, you know, for example. St. Louis, America. Yeah, St. Louis in America. Um, on the on the front of the uh, of the All Blacks is AIG. AIG Insurance use our, our performance product, and um, so it's it's used in small small organisations and very large ones. And now recently, you joined the New Zealand Code Group of New Zealand Software Services. Uh, what was the the thinking behind? getting the, the Kiwi trademark on your software services? Well, I, I think we're, we're quite, proud of, quite proud of where we come from. Uh, I, I, shouldn't, I won't denigrate our, uh, our Australian brethren. I think that, that their culture is so similar to ours and we, we consider ourselves one market really in Australasia. But we're pretty proud of our, um, you know, where we come from and we think the environment here is great. New Zealand's got such a good sort of presence in the international world at the moment, um, particularly over COVID and things. It's a, it's, yeah, it's, a, it's a good label to have. And I like to support these sort of public things, the uh, public organisations. I think it's important to be a member of, of such things. And um, uh, we, I, I'm aware of one local council, well, not, not far from here, quite a reasonable sized council who had purchased some software from overseas and it's just been, they've run through five project managers in the last uh, 18 months trying to get it going and they're getting nowhere and, and uh, that's because no one can come in from Australia. And um, yeah, that's, that, that's an issue now. So it's quite an issue if you haven't got local presence. Does that work in your disadvantage in the opposite way, you not having local presence in the US, for example? Well, in the, in the United States, we've got a completely different model. We, we have people we've brought out. Um, it's, it's really financial people that we want to train up over there. We don't, don't expect any uh, software gurus. They have to know a bit of a sequel. But um, we, we really, we, we've got um, what, five or six main partners over there. Between them, they've probably got, you know, 5,000 local authorities. Um, we're expecting to get, you know, quite a, quite a penetration into those, but it will only be done by their installation staff. So you don't really need the people on the ground because you've got distribution and your software gets wrapped up in their total service to those local... Yeah, yeah we have quite a competent... Um, uh, technical person in, in San Diego but whenever the demand gets too high and so he's training there and our, our associate companies our partner companies 
he's training their installation people on how to do things. So they do all the work. They've got and it's their financial people. Occasionally, we we provide resources from New Zealand and Australia to back that up. So directly into the American companies. That's uh, probably a big focus in the next period is how to speed that up. I said these guys are pretty big. Um, if we have a look at um, the one a company called Cassell out of uh, Utah, they're, they're selling thirty or forty new local authority systems a year with an eighteen-month installation backlog, and they don't always get to put the emphasis on our, our nice stuff on top uh, uh, in the order that we would that we would wish. So we have um, obstacles like that or problems, opportunities, whatever. We we have, um, yeah, we, we've got to work on some of those things, but um, we have solutions in mind. That's always the, the challenge when a, a distributor or reseller is in charge of that direct-to-customer relationship is, Yes, you don't have the cost of sales and people on the ground in an office, but uh, the priorities of, of what service stack or what gets sold in what order may put your, your software further down. But I think you, you'd have an advantage of being the, the interface part, mm. you're the performance suite, you're the reporting mm. part. Mm. You're actually the part that that accounts team touches in their long-term planning because it's the visual part too, isn't it? Well, the, the, the thing is that they're, they're all in the same situation that we were in a few years ago of, of having done all that base work and then getting a new financial man coming and saying, oh, this budgeting is crap. <laughs> we need better reporting. And they're all in the same situation and their software is getting on, it's highly functional, and, and usually get, they have a great relationship with their customers. But... Uh, virtually all of these organisations where, where the products end up are run by the financial department and they expect good reporting and dashboards and that sort of thing. So the drive will come from their customers and, um, and they will, they'll be forced to uh, adopt this. And uh, so the uptake will, it will gather steam but, um, and, and it's our duty to keep to keep ahead of the opposition in terms of the product. In terms of the the, the aggregate across Magic Software, you'll have um, a very interesting view across the collective data set. And with any software business, when you've got, when you can see through data, there's interesting things you can do with machine learning or AI. Um, is there anything you're looking at in those terms that you can talk about around how that could be built in to a service for these organizations? Well, they, they, the big numbers are, it's a, a lot of these things rely on a, a good use case. And, uh, and, and you need fairly imaginative people to come up with those use cases. I think in some of the areas we've been involved with, that there are some mass numbers that you can draw all sorts of inferences from. But many cases, for example, local authorities have just got so many, um, well, they've just got, uh, they don't have very high volumes, but there's a lot of things you have to put together and it just forms a really nice information base. No, they're more repositories of information. Probably not an enormous amount of analyzing things, but. If you're in a health board, for example, and you might want to see, well, what are our trends in 
outstanding leave over the you know, typical year and what are we expecting to be, be like and what's my staff level going to be like? Well, we, you, we can sort of provide that, we can provide that sort of thing out of our reporting, but um, perhaps in some of those areas there will be some AI, you know, those sorts of things where, where you can draw, you know, go in and find deeper, you know, access to information and get deeper, deeper meaning if you like. Um, but it's not always easy to come up with um, good, meaningful things. We're not sort of playing games of chess here or anything like that. Uh, it's, uh, it's, um, just gets back to what, what people on the ground really need and what makes their, their job easier. I can see with some of the big public organisations that, yes, there, there is some complex data to be, um, you know, the information to be gleaned out of their big databases. Uh, but somewhat limited but that is we see that as being one of the real advantages of being tied up with the amazon world and that we intend to keep a very close eye on it the the two that struck me is around these macro trends of uh, climate solutions and adapting which will affect local government uh, and the second around energy and moving to more sustainable models will have a an impact on consumers who ingest that energy and need it, and same with businesses that are, that are large users. And I was wondering whether with an aggregate view, whether it's local government or energy, is there things where you, can, you could see that it will be easier to make some of those shifts? Yeah, that's a, well, we're, we're probably not so involved with the energy world these days, but um, we do do quite a lot of analysis within local authorities, particularly in Australia, about um, energy use and uh, quite complex sorts of analyses out of those um, in, in those councils. Not seeing it so much in New Zealand, um, but uh, yeah, there are. There, there, it requires imaginative people to come up with. Now, as in all philosophy, it's a question that counts, isn't it? It is. It's, what are we uh, trying to solve here? That's what sets the trajectory is the, the question and, and make sure you ask rich and deep questions that that's um, right. can potentially have meaningful answers or at least guide you in the, the right direction. Is there anything else, Jim, that I haven't asked you or areas that you'd like to cover? I'm conscious I haven't asked a lot about the Benson family as such. It's been very much a focus on the business. No, I think... Um um, well, getting back to, I think my brother Pat has been in charge of the buildings. I think we have. In, in the beginning, we just wanted to provide a nice environment for our staff. <laughs> but uh, and that was in the middle of the 80s. And then uh, there's a guy called Robert McGregor here who was in charge of the Art Deco Trust and was concerned about the, the destruction of various Art Deco buildings. And we thought, oh, what's he going on about? <laughs> So we took an interest in it and um, started looking after them. And as they, when they became quite dilapidated, uh, we thought there might be a good business case for saving these. And this building here is a classic one. It's got a wonderful mixture of small offices out here. This is the Daily Telegraph this building. This is the Daily Tele Telegraph building we're in. And uh, uh, that's, that's a good example. It, did, it took a bit of an investment, but um, and they're not, they're probably, it's probably not as sensible as building, um, you know, investing in Auckland or Wellington, but it does have, uh, it, it does contribute to our environment and we're, you know, quite, I think it's an old fashioned word, uh, public spirited about these sort of things. 
So we've ended up with a number of them now, and they've, they've all been revived and all being enjoyed, all fully tenanted. And, um, and um, I, I think we've contributed to the Napier environment. As well as that, we've got a lot of car parks for our staff. <laughs> it's quite an undertaking to acquire old buildings and renovate because of the, the investment versus building new can sometimes be far more for far less square metres. And, and I think one of the interesting things about Napier having come from this region and um, knowing the Art Deco story is that because of the time of Art Deco in that 1930s, there actually very little building going on because it was right after the, the Great Depression and mm. there was only really Miami and Napier from an earthquake outside of big commercial buildings like the Empire State. There's, there's very little Art Deco around the world and that's what makes this such a, a special example. Yeah, and the, the remarkable thing was that um, they uh, re rebuilt Napier in, well, about five years. And uh, you know, they didn't have the big machines, didn't have the technology they have today. And if you compare that with the recovery of Christchurch, for example, they did a, they did a remarkable job. And Art Deco in itself is not necessarily very wonderful architecture, but it's all the ornate, the intricacies and the, and the sameness that's um, when you travel around New Zealand, a lot of the sort of mid-sized cities are yeah, perhaps not that interesting. Napier's got something special and uh, yeah, we, we were quite proud of what we've done here. What would be some of the building names around here if we were walking down Hastings Street or Tennyson Street? Well, um, yeah, there's Mr. Deeds Restaurant next, next door and there's the Daily Telegraph. There's um, 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 Madison's down the, down the road there. Um, around the corner where the music store is, Hartston's, which was still standing and was the model for the uh, buildings after the earthquake. Uh, that's, that's quite a significant one. And there's another number of smaller buildings along there. The pizza place, for example, and uh, the courtyards and the um, Monica Loves. So, all those buildings. Well, um, thank you for your um, contribution to Napier, uh, but also thank you for your sharing about Magic Software uh, that's based here, that also has offices in Australia. It's not often seen what happens with businesses that are software driven, because it's not as physical as something that might be manufacturing goods. And I think it's important to share these stories because as more and more is done in software, these are more important to the future of New Zealand. And uh, thank you for becoming a New Zealand code license holder as a business. Thank it's you. great to be able to, to support and, and lead on what you're doing. Thank you. And um, yeah, I, and I think it's important to recognize where you come from and, and contribute. Uh, it's not just buildings. We fairly major sponsors of the arts and sports and those sorts of things around here where we really do feel part of the community here and, um, and, and the responsibilities that come with that and, uh, and which also, you know, we've, we've been fortunate to be successful and we're happy to share a lot of that with the community. So, I think you've shared some great lessons too, is that lean into complexity and difficulty and doing things that haven't been done before because although it might be hard in the moment, you're actually unlocking value for others in the That's process. Right. That's exactly right. Well, thank you for your time today, Jim. Thank you. And for being on a Kiwi Original. Thank you. Thank you.
that's it for another episode of a kiwi original remember to subscribe on the podcast or on youtube to receive the next episode if you got value from this episode please share it with someone you think could benefit see you next time One of the big things we had to write from the start was we, we we're going to push that it's New Zealand made. New Zealand made carries a lot of weight outside New Zealand. People don't realize that. Well, you're by New Zealand and uh, we were really motivated by your professionalism at the outset when we first contacted you and that gave us the confidence to reach out to the rest of the New Zealand community to support this. We'll get two, three, four, five inquiries every day from people. And, and, and their only question is, are your products made in New Zealand? You know, they, they don't want to know anything else. We knew there was demand in the market for uh, a New Zealand-made product, firstly, a natural New Zealand-made product. We have got New Zealand-made. That was the first thing I signed up to. I was really proud of that. And um, you were very welcoming. So thank you, Ryan. I think it's very, very important to sell in New Zealand as a New Zealand-made product. Originally, we were having to import components from overseas. It wasn't until we shifted to our carbon fiber model that we were able to say that the product was made in New Zealand. And that was a huge, it was sort of a big goal for me. I wanted to have complete control over the manufacturing of it. Definitely, it's something that we've been belonged to right from the beginning. And it just puts trust, especially New Zealanders, into our product. We've noticed recently, people have become so much more discerning about, they will upfront and say to you, is it really made here? And not have to rely on other countries and important components, especially in times like these, I'd, I'd, be, I'd have no stock. Being able to front up to that, and show your logo and say, well, you know, I don't think a lot of people understand that you have to have a license to show that logo. We have also New Zealand made on some of the other brands selling over overseas. And it's something that people are looking for. The little triangle has been a part of our brand for a long time. Is that an investment or is it a cost? You know, can, we, can we spend it given what's going on? No, it's actually good value for us. Yeah, we, we are a Kiwi company. We are proud of Kiwis. And instantly had a, a fruitful conversation without any dancing around or holding back or everything came out. And that was that was part of the, how, why it was so invaluable. And so the best way to do that is to, to join the Binance and Make campaign, right? So I, as you will see on any of my social media stuff, like, yeah, I put the Binance and Make logo. I'm classy on everything I can pass with on. But just being able to prove to people that it is New Zealand made and that we've got a story, it's great. You know, pretty proud to be able to do that.